Like many of you, I suspect, I have a strong memory of where I was when I first heard the name Rosie Batty about her son Luke and his father Greg. And like many of you, I suspect, I was chilled to the bone. I've never quite forgotten it. Not just a father killing his own son, but a cricket practice with a cricket bat. It felt like someone had written an Australian nightmare. I marvelled then and since at the strength Rosie showed as Australian of the Year, stepping forward and turning her grief into powerful advocacy against domestic violence, sometimes in the face of quite hateful responses from those who chose not to understand what she was doing. Before we started the series, I remember seeing a story that she was going to close the Luke Batty Foundation down. Wow, it occurred that maybe she'd been strong for so long she couldn't hold this together anymore, and who would blame her? I wanted to find out where she was in her mind and how she was in her heart. It's difficult doing an interview like this. As an advocate, Rosie has her script, and you're aware that quite often she's on script. That's not false, but it's not the authenticity I'm looking for, the person behind the script. This interview contains probably the toughest question I had to ask in the entire first season of interview, and it was this. You said that Greg killed Luke so that he would win and that you would suffer for the rest of your life. Did he win? There are times in an interview where you're aware that you're going to ask a question that is about as emotionally direct as you can get, which could possibly make the guest real. You don't want them to real. I'm always tense leading up to a question like that, not nerves, but fierce concentration. And I found that the only way to ask a question like that is quietly and carefully. <laughs> Standing ovation, we don't often see that when people come on. No, I don't know what to say. <laughs> thank you. Rosie, thank you for making the, the time tonight. Um, we're going to talk about you stepping back from public life in a while, but let's talk about how you got to be in public life mm. in the first place. It's a well-known story, so I'm not going to linger on the awfulness of it, but uh, in 2014, your ex-partner, Greg, murdered your son, Luke, at cricket practice, and overnight, you became a national identity. And the next day, the media were camped outside your doorstep and you went and spoke to them. No one loved Luke more than Greg, his father. No one loved Luke more than me. We both loved him. And I want to tell everybody that family violence happens to everybody, no matter how nice your house is, how intelligent you are. Happens to anyone and everyone. 24 hours after the worst thing that could have happened, your only child killed, you found it in your heart to have compassion for the man who'd done that. Where did that come from? Um, I don't know. I think that um, I've always been a compassionate person, I guess, and um, that, I would think, comes from... You know, I lost my mum when I was six. She died suddenly and, um, you know, I was brought up with a caring community and a lovely grandmother and I think that that really shaped um, a lot of my choices and it certainly has helped me pull through. Um, it is still a really difficult journey. People saw that, their hearts went out to you. So many were inspired by your courage. Others judged you, they felt that you didn't cry enough, that you were weirdly strong. How do you respond to that? 
I look, I think everyone has opinions. People can't understand. Um, you know, what are you expected to do to, to um, behave like? Well, look what we did to Lindy Chamberlain. Look what we did to her. Um, you know, so if you're showing strength, you're criticised. If you're showing weakness, um, curl up in a ball. I guess everyone thinks, well, if that happened to me, I wouldn't be able to cope. And I, I can honestly say that I would have thought I would have been that same person. But, you know, behind closed doors at, at different times of every day, there are tears, there is pain. About a year, almost a year after Luke's death, you became Australian of the Year, the first, mm. quote-unquote, ordinary Australian to get that honour. Yeah. When you are Australian of the Year, do you get, a like, a sticker on your car, you can park wherever you like? <laughs> do you get free movie pass to all sessions? I mean, do you get anything? Do you get a sash? You get a big glass award. That's it? That, that is it. OK, I'm not going for it then. <laughs> well, it, that is about all you get, but of course it's a great honour. When did that feel at its most surreal? It just felt such a bittersweet um, situation to find myself in for the whole year. You know, I was sat one evening next to Prince Charles um, and, and having a roundtable discussion with Camilla in South Australia and um, flying around, meeting amazing people. You know, the Prime Minister would be asking to see me and speak to me and people were listening to me. And, you, you know, you found yourself thinking, I'd give it all back any time to have Luke back and no matter how hard I work, I can't change the outcome, I can't get him back. For any other person, at any time of their life, this would be, you know, a, a year, this would be the most amazing time of your life. It was really difficult for me, but it was still better than being stuck at home alone and grieving. So I felt really thankful that I did have all of these distractions, this mission, this purpose, these amazing experiences and meeting really amazing people too, you know. It's a very strange kind of celebrity though. You know, do people want selfies with you? How do they approach you? Um, like that, um, you know, I mean, it, it is surreal. I can, I can be walking at my local beach with my dogs and somebody else say, do you know, you, you look like that woman. And I said, do I? And they said, you know that woman that has the... <gasps> and I said, I look like her because that's, I am her. And then they look horrified. But they, you, you know... You should blow their minds and say, I am Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 you know, it is important for people to be able to talk to me and dispel some of the myths. You know, we don't talk about grief well at all. You well, know? That's, that's very interesting because uh, death is very hard to talk about. Murder of your child, probably the hardest thing mm. of all. I can only imagine it's, it's very difficult, actually, for people to broach this subject mm. with you. Yes, it's a scintillating conversation. Well, it's, <laughs> it is a conversation stopper yeah, uh, in, it is. in many ways. Do you get tired of the old Paul Rosie Batty? Um, look, I think when it first happened and I could see the pity or the horror in people's faces and I would think, oh, my gosh, how am I going to 
live with this? How, how am I going to wear this cloak of pity for the rest of my life? I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that has got murder in their life. I mean, I don't know anyone that's been murdered. I, and, and certainly, I could never imagine any family member being murdered. And, you know, we're not those people. And so to think that um, I'm, I've joined a club, you know, a club that no one would want to be signed up for. And, and then over the course of being Australian of the Year, um, you know, I have people now coming up really pleased to see me and just say, Rosie, we're so pleased to meet you. And that fear or the, you know, the pity, it's not there. They're actually genuinely pleased to see me. They admire me for the work I've done. I'm not a poor victim. I'm actually someone that's um, they see as, as as someone that's transcended grief, that actually is someone that they see as a leader. I mean, I may not necessarily see myself in all those capacities, but I certainly appreciate the position that people have put me in because it helps me to, you know, be in that space rather than the alternative. And the alternative is always looming. It's always there on your shoulder because you could be that at any moment. And, um, you know, very soon after Luke's death, in, amongst all of the, uh, the horrible, sad times that we had, we still had moments of laughter. We still had jokes, funny memories. And so for me, it was, it was great to think, OK, I can still laugh no matter what. There is still humour in the world. I so can people still... will be watching this night thinking, what could she possibly have to laugh about? What do you laugh about? There is always lots of things to laugh about. Laughing at yourself is a really good place to start. Give me and an example. I used to laugh a lot with Luke. Yeah. I used to make sure that every day we would have laughter. Um, even he would probably find me very embarrassing and annoying, but there was always laughter. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I, my dogs make me laugh. Um, they're all quirky and different and endearing and they make me laugh every day and um, they're my best friends. And, I, you know, I have a really good friend um, who, you know, really stepped up at the time of Luke's death. Um, we weren't particularly close friends at the time, but he, he wasn't afraid of my grief and he would ring me every day. One of the first things he said to me, this is my memory, he doesn't have the same, he said, tidy yourself up, woman, you look like shit. <laughs> and he's always spoken to me like that. And Why does the Prime Minister make these calls? Why? <laughs> and, you know, so somebody talking to you that's not frightened of upsetting you, that actually is talking to you normally, and he would make me laugh every day. Oh, and he had so much ammunition while I was Australian of the Year. He was saying, oh, for God's sake, I'm reading my newspaper and your bloody head is on the, t is on the photo again. You make me sick. <laughs> and he would just talk like that. But he was proud of me, really. Family violence, of which you've become the, the face in Australia, mm. is, is still a mysterious concept to a lot of people. Mm. Can you explain what family violence is? Um, literally, members of your family that are being violent to each other. And is it physical violence or the it can other be, forms? It can be very different in many forms of it. And I think you're right, you know, we, we more automatically assume that it, that would be physical violence. And even though, um, you know, there is sexual violence, spiritual violence and psychological violence, and all of which um, a victim often is experiencing more than one form at any time. And it can, uh, it's predominantly women, but it's not entirely women that are victims of violence, is that right? 
Our statistics are telling, you know, tell us very, very clearly that it's one in three women will experience physical violence in their lifetime. That's one in three. Um, one in four children. And we have one woman a week being murdered. Um, I keep repeating those statistics because unless we keep talking about the statistics, they get lost. You've had your critics, chief amongst them, Mark Layton. He said that uh, you are suggesting that men beat up women because they naturally hate them. Is that why men commit acts of violence? I, I hope not. I don't, that's not how I look at it. I mean, I grew up... I never knew violence. I don't know anybody out of all my childhood friends that was experiencing violence. I don't have any family members that are violent. It's an, it was an unknown thing to me until I met Greg and I was, you know, nearly 39 and, you know, violence entered my life. I didn't even know what it looked like. I didn't even know I was in a violent situation. Um, I think men have a sense of privilege and entitlement and they see, they can see women as a possession and their children. And I think, you know, when we look at past generations, where the man was the head of the house and the breadwinner. Um, and you, you can talk to many generations of women, you know, grandmothers and grandmas before. You made your bed, you had to lie in it. You know, we married, love, honour and obey. So there was nowhere to go. And if you were experiencing violence, there was no one to turn to. The police, it was just a domestic, you know, and, and there are many stories and, 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 and the police will say, they didn't want to get involved in domestics. That's changed, still not perfect, but it's changed exponentially. Um, but I find it difficult to think that men hate women, but I do think that um, it's, it's, it's something that we really have to analyse. And I think, you know, certainly the men in my life, the men that surround me, the men who are my friends, the men that I meet, are men that love women. Mark Latham also says that when you allege that every man is potentially a wife-beater and every woman is potentially a victim, that you're doing more harm than good because you're demonising men with already low self-esteem. How do you take an angry man, someone who's already carrying anger, and change that behaviour without making them angrier? Look, I think it's a process and I'm, you know, I'm not an expert that works with men in that space, but there are an awful lot that do. And I think a man can very genuinely change if they're willing to and wanting to. But I think it's a conversation that makes people uncomfortable when we're calling it, a, you know, a, a gendered issue. But it, we have to have that conversation. And I have it with some of my friends and they don't like it at all. And I've had very robust what discussions. Um, I think they've, and women particularly as well, we, we you know, you do want to, and I can remember studying family violence many years ago when I was doing my diploma and I was one of the first people that said, but women can be violent too, you know? And um, so I think it's kind of trying to be fair and reasonable and not wanting all men to feel uncomfortable and attacked. But ultimately, um, it would be very rare for a man to live in fear of his life from a violent partner. And yet, of course, we are all capable of extreme ugliness towards each other and, and, and women equally so. I don't have to tell you, it's a very complicated issue, mm. uh, people's lives. Uh, Mark Latham suggests that 
the reason uh, that it's men's low self-esteem, unemployment, welfare dependency, drug and alcohol issues, leads them to use domestic violence as a coping mechanism. They were his words. Is that what you've seen? I think it's just an excuse, isn't it, really? I mean, there are different things that you do if, if you know, if you're feeling you've got low self-esteem or what your life is not tracking as you, you know, and that's my ex-partner, Greg, you know, his, his career was, was, became unemployable. He was, un, um, you know, he had, um, was homeless. He had marijuana addictions. Um, um, you could, you know, he had mental health issues. You can give him a whole stack of excuses, but at the end of the day, he chose to be violent. Mm. It is a choice. And not everybody, of course, seeks violence in, in those, you know, when they're at low points in their life or, or when they're drunk or when they're drug affected, you know. And look, I embrace the likes of Mark Latham because he is reflective of some man. You know, he, he's, he's someone that it's quite incredulous some of the things he said because ultimately, um, all I ever did was want to make sure that my son didn't die in vain. And if I can save the life of some of the children, why would I be a bad person trying to do that? What could possibly be wrong with someone like me speaking out in that way? I'm going to stop right here. We're just before that incredibly tough question I mentioned in the introduction, so it seems like a good time to catch our breath. You said that Greg killed Luke so that he would win and that you would suffer for the rest of your life. Yeah. Did he win? Yeah. He hasn't ruined me. And what do you do with that realisation? It's an ongoing battle. Hmm. It's an ongoing battle. Because um, it does make you suffer. And the way he makes me suffer is... I see my friends with their kids growing up. Luke would be 15 and a half now. And I've, you know, his friends are getting their learners. Um, they're dating. Um, they've got relationships and um, it's really hard. And it, it, you know, you don't just lose your son. You lose, you, you, it's very difficult for people to have relationships with you because they're frightened of upsetting you. They feel guilty. Um, you know, your, your relationships are challenged. You know, you've still got your same core of lifetime friends. You've got your same family members, but all of the relationships are challenged. You never get over it. And I feel this, oh my gosh, how can I feel like this for the rest of my life? You know, this is... This is too much. If I'm going to feel like this for the rest of my life, I don't know whether I want to keep going. And I can see why people don't. Have you had to. that moment? Yeah. Yeah. I was in Sydney um, and I was coming on, in a taxi from one... And I was busy and I was coming from one appointment to another appointment and I opened the taxi door in a rush and the door opened and the bus came past and took the door off. And I just sat there... Um, for a few minutes, and I didn't know whether to feel relieved that I was okay or sad that I was still here. And that was a real, a really deep realization as I kind of tried to make sense of did I 
what did I really want to have happened at that point? And, you know, I, I still have things that make me happy, you know, I, I enjoy. And, and I know that, um, you know, life is, is, is not an easy road for anybody. Um, and I think I'm really, really fortunate that I've been given the opportunities I've had. Um, and I think I've got some, a lot of things to be thankful for. Um, I have a family that really um, support me. They live in England, but they're only a phone call away and they come, you know, over as they can. I've got some, you know, really caring, genuine friends. Um, I've got a lot of people who check in with me and make sure I'm good. And um, I live in a nice, a lovely house in a beautiful area and I do make sure that I'm really acknowledge the things I've got to make me happy, yeah. You're still in the same house mm. where Luke grew up. Mm. Why did you not move away? There was many things, you know, I could have moved. Where would I move to? Um, I've got two donkeys. I've got two goats. I've got four dogs. You're not building an ark, are you? No. No. <laughs> but I've always been, I, you know, I came from a farm in England mm. and I, I've got all the animals my dad would never let me have. And so, um, this is, you know... I just think of the ghosts that are in that house. You know, it, it's a difficult one to know what's the right thing, but I think once you move, you can't go back. So you've got to be really clear on, is it the right thing to move? And a lot of the memories are comfortable. And I've gone through that sad pain of looking across the pool and going, I'll never see Luke in there again, to looking across at the pool and going, it looks lovely, mm. you know, it's really nice and I'm happy, you know, and everything's looking good. You know, I look at photos now of Luke and I've got the same ones around the house and I now can look in his eyes and, and, and smile. And so I think that, you know, it, it does shift and, and I do think the pain um, is, it, you begin to, to live with it more and, and, and I think that... Um, you know, that's the thing that I want people to really know, that there's an awful lot of people have to go through some really, really challenging things in their lives and the loss of, um, the loss of, you know, not just one child but sometimes the entire family and I just think, oh, my gosh, how do you get through that? And Which is how we look at you. Yeah. You wrote a, a very powerful thing. You said, I had one job in life which was to protect Luke and I failed at that. Do you still carry that sense of failure? No, I think that, you know, unfortunately things had unravelled a lot while I was in the UK. I was in the UK for five or six weeks just before Luke got killed. So there were certain things that the police didn't share and I didn't know and all, for all those reasons that they had. So I think, you know, I was able... On the night that Luke got killed, the policeman said to me, this is not your fault. This was a premeditated act, Rosie. And so those words really helped me that night, really helped me. And I can just imagine, you know, I have thought about Lindy Chamberlain a lot and I'm thinking from the moment that happened, the way she was treated and the way that you'd be grieving and to have added to that the police and the public opinion of you would be impossible to bear. There's a lady in... Um, in Perth, 20 years ago, she's quite well known. She does a lot of wonderful work in this space and she had her children. She was, her, both of them were shot dead in bed with her. She's had part of her leg removed 20 years ago and then he shot himself. His family still blame her. 
She didn't have anyone helping her at the time. Nobody from the community came and cooked her any meals, came and said, are you okay? Nothing. And I think, you know, how we have... She, they blamed her, pretty much. So how we, we have changed or we're changing, because my experience was I had an army of swarms of people who couldn't have done enough for me, you know, showing me how great humanity is. And that's what I choose to look at. So I think that um, um, I, I, I feel that the memories at this point are important for me to, to be around, but I don't think it's the, my final destination. Well, you announced in February you're going to close the Luke Batty Foundation, yeah. which is a very big call after yeah. everything you put into it. Why? Um, look, I, I went to the UK for two months um, in September and October and I had that, it was the first time I had a really extended time out. I trekked from the west coast of England to the east. It was gruelling, it was beautiful, it was, it was many gin and tonics in the pubs along the way and I just loved it and it gave me a really great sense of peace um, I started to walk again, get fitter, started to lose some weight, feeling... I just started to find myself again and realise that um, I needed to start to really listen to what people have been telling me. Because if I kept doing the, what I was doing, working at the pace I was doing it, I would become ill. I mean, I, my health was already compromised and I've, I've always been a fairly healthy, resilient person. And um, I, I just knew that I couldn't keep you know, seven days a week, I've been triaging emails, people in crisis, trying to, you know, feeling I, I can't, I wish I could do more, feeling the burden of, I can't fix this. I can only do as much as I can do. And even if I need a team and an army of people helping me, and I, there's only me. Um, well, so the cost of the grief you're carrying, yours and, and other people's, Yeah. How, what has that trauma done to you personally? Yeah. I think after um, Australian, being Australian of the Year was, was an incredibly difficult year. Um, the pace, the demands, the unrelenting volume of requests and people, and I didn't realise, I knew I wasn't coping at different times, but I still got to where I needed to be. I still spoke or met people, but on the journey on the way there or was often emotional or I was crying or I was really upset or angry or sad or, you know, a million of different kinds of emotions. So I don't think I realised how much the trauma had deeply affected me. Um, I, was, I wasn't in the right space. And then the year, the year after that, I had a little bit more time and started to realise that I was more affected than I... And so now I see the trauma. I can feel it. I can see it coming. I, I can understand its impact on me. I'm, it's going to be a long time for, to work through it because we all know the word trauma, but we don't necessarily know what it looks like in people. And so for me, being in a constant state of hypervigilance where I'm in fight and flight all of the time because something may happen, something is happening, something, you know. And, you know, when you look back, of course, because the night that Luke got murdered, you know, you, you're dealing in an absolutely hideous situation that you can't comprehend. And so now every surprise, every little bit of information that I wasn't expecting, 
triggers you into a heightened state of anxiety. And so it's important for me to start to realise how much I need to um, manage my stress, work on a better balance, um, start to really understand strategies and how to deal with trauma. Um, and, the, and, it, and it does, it, it really does have a physical effect on your body as well. And it really is, you know, until you get it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that one day I'll be able to not react in such a highly anxious way. But um, that's, that's the journey. I get the sense, though, that you're exhausted. You're emotionally exhausted. Mm. Yes. So what is the alternative life Rosie Batty would lead? What would the, the healthier Rosie Batty look like? Well, I have a gym, gym membership. I've had one for three years. I've been three times in three years. <laughs> you and 90% of Australia, I think. I have a treadmill that's got about two inches of dust on the top of it. I look at it and I think, oh, yes, that's a treadmill. <laughs> um, you know, I love being in... Um, I live in the, on the Mornington Peninsula. I think it's a beautiful area in Victoria. I love semi-rural lifestyle. I love being outside. I love walking on the beach. And I think, you know, I love being with friends. I like a nice wine. I love good food. And, you know, I'm social. And I like to laugh and I like to be, be with people. And so I think that um, providing I've got access to those ingredients, that's really... And a good book, um, good, nice theatre, good concerts. I went to see Robbie Williams recently and that, you know, dancing for th about two hours or something, that puts you in a really good space. So I think I know what I enjoy and I need to make sure that I put as much of those things I enjoy into my life as possible. And I think that I'll always want to have... I've always wanted to make a difference in my life. I had no idea, of course, what was ahead. Um, I think I'll always, I know I'll always want to contribute in some way and um, I certainly don't want to stop working to change our, um, things for, for victims of family violence. Um, it's just really trying to do it in a more measured way or a, a way that um, is, is not trying to do everything. So what do you most crave right now? Well, good Shiraz goes down well. <laughs> but at least I haven't turned into an alcoholic. You know, people say, how are you going? I think, well, I sleep OK. I'm not an alcoholic. I've stopped chain smoking. So I think when you, you know, look at all those things, I'm not doing too bad. Um, so I think um, I, I know what I need to do because I've been on many courses and I know I need to meditate and do yoga and... Things like that. Well, the good thing is you've got this perfect carpet, two inches of dust on your treadmill that you can do the yoga on. So you can <laughs> so relax. somebody doesn't switch it on as I'm sitting on it. That would but, be um... hilarious to watch. <laughs> I'll finish with a personal question. Do you imagine another man in your life? Um, I'm not sure. It, it's an interesting question because I do ponder on it and I, you know, there is so much that my feelings are all still consumed about Luke that I don't know that I have the capacity to care for somebody else. I think that, you know, time... I do think time is a healer and I do think that with creating more space in my life as I move forward, it, it, it perhaps invites the possibility for someone else to come into it. But I, you know, initially I think, oh, the hell would want to be around somebody that's got such a burden of 
of, of grief and, and things like that. So there may be some of you that's special that can weather that, um, but I, I think um, it'll be a little bit of time yet. I wish you well lifting the burden. Thank you, Rosie. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. For a long time afterwards, I remained haunted by the image of Rosie in the same house, seeing the same boys and girls Luke went to school with going past a gate every day, getting older, getting bigger, when Luke never would. I get why she's there, but it still stirs me. It stirred our audience too, lots of responses, mostly great, but with the odd, I don't know, polar vortex moment. Louise Thomas, no one has the right to judge anyone's grief. It's a personal journey for each person. It doesn't matter what you do, you're judged. At the end of the day, those that judge you are simply not worth your time. Karen Robertson, Rosie, this was such a great interview. I could relate to so much of what you said in regards to losing a child, particularly your comments about what a shock it was to have murder in your family. Sometimes the fact that my daughter was murdered still seems so unreal, even after nearly five years. And yes, we can put on a brave face in public, but behind closed doors, we think of our children every day and what could have been. Then this from Kevin Adams. Why would she cry when she turned a heartbreaking tragedy into a profitable career? She's laughing all the way to the bank. Kevin, I hardly know where to begin, but just imagine going home every day to the house where your son used to be and reliving every day the way he was murdered by his father. Profit? I don't think so. Thanks for listening. I hope you found something of value in Rosie's story. And please check out some of our other interviews in the series. If you want to contact us, try facebook.com slash interviewau. That's all for this one. But remember, as wise old Nelson Mandela used to say, we're all just walking each other home. <laughs>